Welcome to Abergavenny Baptist Church. Today's Palm Sunday. We enter into Holy Week, the time of this, the time of year when we remember all that Jesus did for us. I'm going to take us through a sweep of three chapters of Matthew. Last Sunday I was going to preach a different sermon completely. This Sunday is this sermon, so I hope it works. Let's read Matthew one twenty one together. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the centre of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Praise God in highest heaven! The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So I'm going to talk about Palm Sunday and the few days that followed from Matthews chapter 21 to 23. I'm going to talk a lot about expectations. Palm Sunday and Holy Week are all about Jesus pointing out the incorrect assumptions which the Jews and their religious leaders had about the Messiah. And it's about Jesus showing what the kingdom of heaven is like. I'm going to repeat reference to the cultural iceberg I mentioned a couple of sermons ago. Particularly talking about the position about your worldview and your assumptions. Everything begins from some position of assumption of what it is that you understand to be so. And your religious practices, your heritage, your nationality, your social status, all these things affect how you understand events around you. The Jews wanted a conquering military hero to ride into Jerusalem and drive out their occupiers. They knew the Messiah was coming to save the kingdom of Israel. They knew that was, was, was what that was what that was what was going to happen, and they presumed it was going to be this military leader, this this Saul-esque, David-esque leader to drive the other people out. Instead, what they got was a man riding on a donkey. To us, a donkey means nothing because a donkey is a donkey. No one takes any notice of donkeys. In my work in, in Africa, no one takes notice of donkeys. Donkeys are the beasts of burden, and no one cares for a donkey because all they are useful for is carrying burdens, and how useless is that? Yet they are the essential being that keeps villages working. But in, in this time, Jesus' time, a donkey was a beast of nobility. It's very powerful that Jesus rode in on a donkey, because a donkey does mean nobility. It also means peace. It means that the king has won, The king is in a time of peace and of order. Horses were only used when you were at war. Donkeys were worn when you had won, when you were in charge, when 
you were the king. So Jesus returning to Jerusalem on his donkey was saying clearly, I'm the king, all under control, everything's normal, I'm in charge. Jesus was, was not saying, we're at war, I'm coming to drive out the Romans. You'll also notice it was planned. I've never thought about this before, but how did the owner of the two donkeys know to just let them go? Jesus had obviously gone to him beforehand sometime in the past and paid him for rent. There was a contract. So the guys, the disciples would just walk over and say, can we borrow these two donkeys? Yeah, fine. Your boss needs them, yeah, and that's fine, take So it was all planned. Because Jesus knew, and everyone knew, what a donkey meant, what a king, what a person riding on a donkey symbolized, it was an intentional statement of Jesus' majesty. I am the king of the Jews. It was also an act of courage and bravery. Everyone knew, and Jesus knew, that there was a price on his head. He was the troublemaker. He was the guy they all out to get. For those of us that are of timid character, we would have snuck into Jerusalem through the back door, in the dark, under a cloak, without anyone noticing that we were there. Jesus said, no, that's not the way I'm going to do this. In a Nigel Farage-esque statement of publicity and maximizing brand position, I will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, stating fully for everyone to see, I am the king, and I am brave and courageous, and I am in charge. No one misunderstood the symbolism of what he did. It was an also an appeal of love to his people. I am your king. In a Saul-esque, David's way, I have come to be your leader. Are you following me, or are you following others? That's my rush through Palm Sunday. I'm now on to Monday. So the returning king turns on the religious leaders who've been in charge in his absence and walks into the temple and says to the money changers, how what you have been doing is terrible. My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The religious leaders were tolerating the abuse and the extortion of money from the pilgrims that came to Jerusalem to buy sacrifices, knowingly and willingly. The leaders were behind it, and the leaders were profiteering from that. To buy your two doves to make your sacrifice cost you a half a shekel or a shekel. To convert a Greek coin or a wherever you come from, to convert your coins into shekels, which is what you had to use to buy them, I wonder what interest rate they would charge. It's just like going to Bristol Airport and trying to buy dollars. You're absolutely ripped off because you're a captive audience. And the Jewish leaders knew that was happening. It was an intentional act of corruption. Having left the temple and caused that disarray, Jesus walks out and looks at a fig tree and just says, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately, the fig tree withered up. It wasn't that the fig tree was a bad fig tree, one that should have been chopped down beforehand. It was a fig tree that symbolized the Jewish people. A beautiful, verdant fig tree, but without any fruit. Jesus was furious with the religious leaders for the lack of fruit that their fig trees were producing. They were failing as people to produce the fruit that Jesus had expected to see, that God wanted from his teaching. 
And now Jesus rattles through three parables where Jesus tells stories to ram home the point to the leaders just how corrupt, inept, and worthless they were. The first one in Matthew 21, 28 to 32 talks about the power of the two sons. I can relate to this one. The father says to the sons, can you go to the vineyard? The first son says, no, I'm not going to go. I'm just going to stay at home. The second son says, yes, I'll go. And then just doesn't, just chooses to sit down, just forgets. The first son says, oh, I should have said yes, and goes to the vineyard and starts harvesting grapes. Jesus says, which son obeyed his father? The son that disobeyed and then obeyed, or the son who said yes and then ignored? Clearly the first son. Jesus is criticizing the Jewish by saying for the second son, you've all said yes, but you do nothing about it. That's why Jesus then said, I assure you, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. You think you're so good, but actually you're dreadful. So next one, 33 to 45, the parable of the evil farmers. The story of the landlord who builds a vineyard. A beautiful vineyard, beautifully equipped, lovely light wall around it, then gives it to tenants to manage it on his behalf. The landlord sends servants to get the rent and they stone them, they abuse them, they drive them away. He then sends his son, they kill his son. What the question that Jesus asks the leaders is what will be the punishment from the landlord to the tenants? And their answer is the landlord will drive out the tenants and replace them with good tenants. About 10 minutes later, they realize he's talking about them, that they are the tenants, they are the farmers who have driven, who have ignored the will of the landlord and have killed the son. Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. So the religious leaders are getting an absolute slamming from Jesus as he points out to them through parables their failings constantly of never doing the task that they were given. Jumping to Matthew 22, the first 15 verses are about the parable of the wedding banquet. This the story where, where the host of the wedding invites all the guests. And when the, when the guests, when the banquet is ready, the message is sent to them all. Come now, it's ready. And they all choose to ignore the invitation. They don't come. The, the host of the wedding then says to his servants, go to the highways and the byways, get anybody to come. Just get, invite everyone to come. Because those who wanted to come have rejected my invitation. So bring anyone else to come and celebrate with me this wedding. Again, a, a clear story from Jesus to the leaders. You failed. You've had this invitation and you just ignore it. Go and find anyone else. So the message of the, of the good news is open to all, not just to those who were invited. The religious leaders try to argue back. In Matthew 21, they talk about, by whose authority are you speaking, Jesus? By whose authority did you drive out these merchants? Why did you do what you did in the temple? How dare you do that? Why did that happen? So then Jesus says, how did I do, did John's baptism happen from authority from heaven or from earth? 
Jesus used his wisdom and his skillful negotiating skills and diplomacy to point out to them the idiocracy of their position. If the Jewish leader said it's from heaven, he would then say, why didn't you believe in the first place? If it's from earth, they'll be mobbed because everyone knows that John's baptism was from God. So instantly he took any of their authority and power away from them by pointing out that they had no authority. They then ask about who should pay taxes. Jesus replies, give to Caesar what belongs to him, but everything that belongs to God must be given to God. Jesus just uses a higher principle, uses a higher logic, a godly logic, to just dismiss everything that the Jewish leaders had understood and just show their, their logic to be so shallow and so false and so self-centered. Then there's a story, Matthew 22, 23 to 33, about the seven brothers who married the same woman because she had all the all her husbands died and they all took it in turns to marry her and, and who would she be who would she be the wife of when she was in heaven? God Jesus replied, God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living and not of the dead. He just changed the paradigm completely and pointed out to them the again the, the stupidness of how they were thinking. They were trying to trick him up, but they only end up tricking themselves. And the, and the, one of the guys, then another leader says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus cuts through the Ten Commandments and point out just how central love is to all of this. So having pointed out through parables and stories how foolish and how failing they had been in their role, he then passed the judgment on Matthew 23 is a category of, of woes and disasters. They talk about the seven woes. I've not picked out all seven, but they talk about seven woes. In Matthew, in verses 3 and 4, he says, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they do not practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. It's not great if you're a religious leader. It gets worse. What sorrow awaits you in verse 13 and 14, you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You will, you will not go in yourselves, and you do not let others enter either. Verse 23, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. The pedantic nature with which the religious leaders would follow the law and write new laws to create new laws to cover the gaps in the laws that they had before, but forget the point. And because they failed to remember the point, Jesus, as the king returning, just slammed them for their failings. And it, this is the ver last verse about this, this passage. Matthew 20, verse 36. I tell you the truth. All the accumulated judgment of the centuries will fall on this very generation. Everything that's gone wrong before will now fall on Caiaphas and all the other leaders because of their abject failure to lead 
in the way that they were instructed to do so. And Jesus passes judgment on the city of God, Jerusalem itself. The returning king comes to his capital. This is what he says about it. This is the view from Mount of Olives. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. Jesus didn't have many nice words to say on his return to Jerusalem. There's been a bit of a rush through and quite a heavy stuff. Now I want to go on to ourselves and think about ourselves as leaders and as followers. How do we compare? Regulars here will know that we've often sing this song, City on a Hill. We are a city city on a hill, we sing. We are a light in the darkness. Jesus living in us can change the world. Thinking about Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over Jerusalem and weeping for what she was doing. Can you just close your eyes a second? Can you stand on top of the sugar loaf? Or on top of the blorange? Or on top of the skirid? Or on the rollin? Or on the dairy? Wherever you stand, you just look at Abergavenny. Now ask the Holy Spirit to help you see it as Jesus sees it. How does it look as a kingdom of God city, as a kingdom of God town? What do we see? Do we see cities on the hill? Do we see lights in the darkness? Or do we see darkness? You can open your eyes now. Google Maps shows us this. When you zoom into the centre, we can see our roof, but we're not actually even signposted. We can't actually see our... We don't actually pop up on a Google Map to search. And apologies for the next clip on the slide, but I'm not a lyricist or a songwriter, but if we were to say we are a church in a town centre. We are a light in the darkness. Jesus living in us can change our town. Does that resonate with us? For many of you who are looking at me cannot turn around and look up there because that same glass window behind on the back wall is full of light now. And I look at that and it's beautiful. But none of you can see it because you're looking at me. And actually when you're on Frogmore Street, it doesn't really stand out. It doesn't really look very sort of beautiful. In that sense, our church building is sort of muted. I wonder how it could be. In Matthew 5, Jesus talks about light of the earth. The whole point of City on the Hill is, is that verse about don't hide your light under a bushel. The second half of that same verse talks about you are the salt of the earth. So I googled salt cellars and then came up with this one. This. Anyone know about this? Is? Okay, it is. Cellini salt cellar was made in 1503 and was insured for a million euros when someone stole it from a museum. When I worked in Peru and Bolivia and I saw the grandeur of many churches and the poverty of the people, I was horrified by how much money was spent inside the church making churches beautiful, making salt cellars that look absolutely stunning. I was horrified by how little salt actually doing any good. So are we simple, basic salt sellers? Are we fit for purpose? Are we full of salt? Are we useful? 
what I hope, what I wonder whether you saw as you closed your eyes and looked over Abergurney, whether you saw churches as salt cellars with the lids off, with a bit of salt spread around, like a salt pot that's active and working and doing some good. Did you see lights on it? Did you see places that are lights and beacons, or did we see darkness? That's my hope for us all. That's my challenge. So as I close, I want to make three. I made three points. I've rattled on. I've talked fast. I always do. I've swept through three chapters. I've mentioned three parables. I've mentioned four discussions with Jesus and the leaders. I've mentioned various other pieces. So I've said an awful lot. The three things to remind you again are these three things. One. Jesus deliberately announced his majesty entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus is not meek and mild, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Bring me like a little child. Jesus is the king. Let us never forget his majesty and his awe and his wonder. He demonstrated his kingly authority through the parables and conversations that he had with the religious leaders. He led and he did not tolerate failure or poor performance or not being fit for purpose. He condemned them for failing in their task of teaching and interpreting the law of Moses. My challenge to ourselves is, are we interpreting the teaching of the law of Moses and the Lord Jesus in a way that is fit for purpose? So my challenge to ourselves is simply this, is our light bright? Each one of us as individuals, us as a church, the churches together in Abergavenny, the witness around South Wales, South, all of South Wales, is our light bright as a church and is our salt fresh and seasoning our surroundings or is it out of date, out of use to be trampled underneath our feet? That's my challenge to each one of us as we enter Holy Week as Palm Sunday leads into Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, may we reflect on our light and our salt as we go through the week. That's my challenge to each one of us now. So I'll just pray for that second. So Father, just as we've been looking down on the town with your eyes, may your Holy Spirit talk to us about how you want us to be. Many of the stories I've shared are ones we've known before. Renew our understanding of them. Challenge us in our interpretation of those parables and those stories. Help each one of us to understand what you're saying to us now. Embed in each one of us your words that matter. Help us to hear what you are saying to us today. Help us to have your courage your bravery to live them out in spite of the challenges that that may bring for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information about Abergavenny Baptist Church, please visit our website at abergavennybaptist.co.uk.